Welcome to Autism in the Adult podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Teresa Regan, an adult neuropsychologist. I specialize in brain behavior relationships for those 14 and older. I'm the parent of an amazing teen on the autism spectrum and a certified autism specialist. I am deeply grateful to bring validation, hope, and purpose to individuals and their families living on the autism spectrum. With this mission at its core, I founded and currently direct the OSF Healthcare Adult Diagnostic Autism Center in Central Illinois. My books include Understanding Autism in Adults and Aging Adults and Understanding Autistic Behaviors. For more information and to join my online community for free, visit www.adultandgeriatricautism.com. Please join me in helping individuals, couples, and families thrive while living life on the autism spectrum. Hello, this is Dr. Teresa Regan joining you for Autism in the Adult podcast. This is the third of a series of podcasts where we've been reviewing what I call the physics of behavior. I coined that term while writing my book, Understanding Autistic Behaviors. I think it gives a nice image to compare neurologic behavioral patterns with. So let's take this image as an example. We talked about how sometimes when we are still, we've been resting, maybe we've been taking a break, we've been on vacation, or even just in a state of exhaustion. Maybe we've just been so exhausted that we've taken this hiatus from a regular schedule and we rest and we're still. And that's fine, but then we also have to get the momentum back for daily activities. And we talked about how that act of getting momentum again can be really effortful And particularly on the autism spectrum, this ability to switch gears from being inactive to being active can be very exhausting in itself, and it can be difficult to get that momentum back again. So we used the image of a car that had maybe stalled out. And I know back when I was first learning to drive, I had a stick shift. And with those, you could, if it stalled, you could ask some friends to give you a push. And sometimes if you were pushed and then maybe you were even going down an incline, the transmission would pop into gear and you could kind of um, go ahead and drive that car and it would help the battery recharge. So once you had a push, you could get some momentum. And the momentum, once it was gained, then that act of driving, in this case, kind of took on a little bit of its own uh, energy. It wasn't as effortful as that first push. And we can feel that when we think about, oh, going from this sedate uh, pace, and maybe you have nothing to do that day except one thing. And you know how that one thing just becomes a mountain then? You feel like, oh my gosh, I just can't get energy for this one thing. And we might describe ourselves as feeling lazy that day or sluggish, uh, maybe foggy. And it just is like walking through mud to try to 
get our momentum to do this very tiny thing. That is our sense of having to overcome inertia from going from a stopped state to a moving state. And that inertia can feel very effortful to overcome. Once we do that extra push, that extra energy, and this is what we talked about in the last podcast, how to gain momentum for behaviors, how to overcome inertia. You know, once that is overcome, keeping momentum can be a lot easier. So let's take this example of having gone from, you know, having one thing to do in the day, and now maybe you're actually back in your routine and you have 12 things to do that day. The one thing that you start with seems like a small thing, like, oh yeah, I did have this one thing to do. I did it, it's over, and now I just have 11 more to go, and you just keep going. Uh, You don't have to think about how do I overcome this energy glut just to do this one thing. Because it can be easier to get through daily activities when you have some momentum or behavior, this is going to be our topic for today, how to keep momentum without losing it. Because you know what happens if we either go from a nice momentum to an accelerated momentum, which we talked about in the first of the series, where if we're accelerating, our tasks and our pace just get out of control. We may not realize that, but all of a sudden we say, I did 12 things yesterday. I could probably do 13, 14, 15 things today. Or we might say, oh, I was going to rest today, or I was going to make sure that I ate on time, but I just started researching this new topic and it is wonderful. It's so intriguing that I just can't stop. I feel like I could feed on this topic rather than eating or sleeping. And so that's what happens. There's this acceleration, there's this intense interest, this propelling into a topic or activity that gets out of control then. It gets too intense, it doesn't have enough breaks And that kind of intensity and pace is not self-sustaining either. And what happens is the person goes from this accelerated pace, crashes, goes into a still spot. You know, I've come to a standstill, I'm exhausted. And then has to go through that whole process of overcoming inertia again. How do I get going to do even one thing? Instead of bouncing back from this still state to this accelerated and intense state, we want to have strategies that help people stay just right with enough momentum to make daily activities less effortful, but not so much intensity of schedule that the system isn't nourished and rested and repaired and able to keep going at that pace. It's kind of like the difference between not exercising at all, which could be one state. Another exercise state could be sprinting. That's kind of like the acceleration state. But most of us realize that life is more like a marathon. We have to move and get going, but we also have to laugh. We can't just sprint and then crash, right? We've got a distance to go. We've got things to accomplish. We have goals. We have ways that we can be interacting in the community. 
And we want to be able to keep pace without being exhausted, burning out, having to start over. So that is the focus of this talk, how to keep that nice pace going, keep momentum without swinging back and forth. The circuitry in the center and front of the brain is really involved in this piece, which many people would call regulation, our ability to regulate, so um, take to adjust right state, our levels of alertness, of calm, and of achievement during our day. Regulation is really impacted by the pathways in the center and the front of the brain. And therefore, because these are pathways involved in autism, we can see that individuals on the spectrum often have more difficulty finding that just right pace and keeping it in a way that really helps them out. Uh, so sometimes there are things that have to be more strategic. Uh, there do have to be things in place that will help the person keep some momentum without accelerating and crashing. One of my biggest recommendations is planned self-care. I think one of the biggest mistakes people make, and this occurs in all domains of our life, it's a very common recommendation in school, it can be common in the workplace, or even that, uh, you know, healthcare may, may talk to you about this, or mental health care. It's this concept that we have in our culture of resting as needed, taking breaks as needed. On the autism spectrum, I really don't see that as being the best way to achieve this nice momentum. Because for the individual on the spectrum, they have more difficulty oftentimes monitoring the internal world. So in addition to having difficulties thinking to themselves, what am I feeling right now? And what just happened? Um, they also have generally more difficulty monitoring their physical state as well. Um, like not only what emotion am I experiencing, but am I hungry? Am I tired? Am I feeling sick? Am I in pain? And even if someone on the spectrum is able to stop and um, investigate their internal world and detect that, a lot of times things from the external world are so compelling, particularly within their special interests. They're researching it. They love this. And a lot of times that takes up all of their consciousness. And it mutes any way that the body can say, oh, and you forgot to eat. And you got three hours less sleep last night. Um, so those kinds of signals for self-care are very muted, particularly when um, the nervous system feels very compelled by an activity or a topic. The other part about self-care as needed that's difficult is that it's this spontaneous realization that, oh, I'm in the middle of a task and actually my system needs something else. So then what do you have to do? You have to spontaneously be able to switch gears. And switching gears is one of the neurologically difficult things on the spectrum. Whereas someone else with different strengths and challenges their nervous system may be able to say, oh, you know what? 
I'm hungry or I'm thirsty. I'm going to stop this and run over to the kitchen and I'm going to get something. The person on the spectrum probably is going to struggle. Number one, to realize that. Number two, then to feel like, oh yeah, that would be effortless for me to switch gears and go take care of my need. When the person on the spectrum is on a path of interest or feeling compelled in something, or even just accomplishing something that must be done, they oftentimes feel very strongly that they want to finish this before they go to something else. And they may really struggle to leave something unfinished or to leave something that they feel very interested in. What happens then is that even if the person realizes they're hungry or tired or getting frustrated or overwhelmed, they may not have the resilience neurologically to actually in that state, which is not their strongest state, to shift gears and regroup and do something else. A third reason that that doesn't work is that it often requires uh, social communication, not always. Like if you're at home, uh, you're alone, you're in charge of shifting gears, that's one thing. But a lot of times um, we have to communicate with someone else that we have a need and we need to go take care of it. So let's say a student is in school and they realize they are getting overwhelmed. It's too loud. They're feeling nervous and panicked. They're having trouble breathing. They need to step out. And maybe they have in their school plan, permission to step out as needed when they feel overwhelmed. Well, here's an overwhelmed student, and what do they need to do now? Well, they need to approach the teacher and communicate their needs and their plan. They have to let the teacher know where they're going, that they're going to be taking a break, that they'll be coming back. Other students in the room will notice this and will wonder why the student's leaving, and maybe they'll ask them after, where did you go? So the demand on this overwhelmed student to do other things that are overwhelming, like have people look at them and ask them about what happened, and also just to talk to people, you know, to verbalize what they need and what their plan is, that can just tip the scales where the person just can't do that. They're overwhelmed already. So you don't want to get to the point of saying, oh, I need this. You want to care for the self ahead of time. Once you get to the point of saying, oh, I need this, on the spectrum, it's very likely that if the need were caught much earlier, it could be cared for much more efficiently. But once it's broken through that barrier of attention and awareness, it may be that the person's already too overwhelmed to then switch gears and socially communicate. So one of my number one recommendations is for planned self-care, planned breaks, uh, planned ability to give the nervous system what it needs on a regular basis, and then to have a plan for crisis inputs as well. So you're going to have things that you do every day, whether you feel like you need them or not. And then you're going to have things that you do in a crisis where you say, oh my gosh, I've been doing my regular schedule, my regular routine of care 
but I've just really had a rough day. A customer yelled at me. My mom criticized me. I got a present for my partner and they didn't like it. And I need extra self-care. I'm going to use some of my crisis plan um, to get better regulated so that I don't crash um, and need all that effort to get up again. So the planned part of self-care, this could involve things like sensory inputs. And we talked a little bit about these during the last episode, but sensory inputs are a way to help the nervous system feel more centered and that might help with this sense of resilience. One person may really feel more resilient when they have a certain amount of pressure input. That's proprioceptive sensory input. The pressure can be in the joint, like if you're weightlifting or doing yoga, anything with resistance to the joint, pushing, pulling, or hanging. Another person may feel very calmed by pressure in the muscles. Another way to get proprioceptive input, like if you have a weighted blanket or are getting a massage. Other people get that pressure in the muscle by laying in a hammock or something where they really kind of curl up and get a nice hug from their environment. Another person may really feel that they do best when they get a certain amount or type of movement input. That's vestibular input. When the brain gets signals that the body is moving through space, it can help with this kind of regulation for some individuals. Now, a person does not get vestibular input if they're walking on a treadmill because they're not walking through space but they will get that if they're walking through the neighborhood, if they're riding a bike, if they're swinging on a swing. All of those are examples of linear vestibular input. Another type of vestibular input is rotary. We'll see a lot of kids seeking this kind of input. They might like to spin or twirl and uh, just run around in circles to get that circular rotary input. Other people like really gentle kinds of movement input. For example, if we rock a baby, we're giving them a very gentle, predictable, linear, calming input, and that can help them feel more centered. It can help them feel restful. Other people get this kind of input on a rocking chair. They can just get that gentle kind of movement. Other people get grounding inputs and soothing inputs with other senses, like listening to a particular kind of music or nature sound, smelling a certain type of incense or scented lotion or candle. Other people watch things. I have clients that really love to watch waterfalls on YouTube or lava lamp. Whatever kind of input might regularly help your nervous system feel centered, maybe a good thing to schedule on a daily basis. And you don't have to do exactly the same thing every day, but maybe you're someone who likes movement and a certain amount of pressure. On one day before work, you might take a brisk walk around your neighborhood before work to get yourself going 
And then when you come home from work, maybe you take a warm bath with scented oils and do some yoga. The next day, you say, well, I still need some movement input. So today I'm going to ride my bike. And when I get home from work, I'm going to regroup by doing some weight and by making fresh bread, which gives that scent that is so calming to me. Other things that people do on a planned basis have to do with their special interests. A lot of times people on the spectrum will feel very filled up by playing their favorite video game, looking at their Pokemon cards, um, adding to their collection of Pinterest photos for a particular board. Whatever is so interesting to them can also feel very rejuvenating and in spurts throughout the day can be a nice way to rest and recover while still keeping momentum for activities in between. One person may decide that after school every day, they regroup from the school day by watching YouTube videos about animals because that is very restorative to them. And then after 40 minutes of this, they set it down, they get a snack, and they go through their homework to explain to their parent what needs to be done that night. Another way to think about inputs would be, as we said, the crisis input. This is something that you might plan unique for that day, that you might need a little extra or a kind of unique input or activity level. Let's say that you know you have to get a cavity filled uh, tomorrow during your school day, and you also need to get your hair cut. Well, knowing your nervous system, you know that school, the dentist, and the haircut are all very difficult for you. So number one, you're going to decide to get the haircut on a different day. You're going to try to spread out the demands on your nervous system. Now, the filling is something that has been going on for a long time. You really have to go get it done. And there's no other time than in the school day. Well, in that case, you may decide that a half hour before the appointment, you'll leave school and stay in the car and listen to your favorite music and squeeze a stress ball while you're wearing a weighted blanket in the car. And you can just relax and regroup before the appointment. And then after the appointment, you might take another half hour to do the same thing. Or you may choose some other activities or calming things in the car that would help before you go back to your school environment. So looking at your schedule and planning what you could do before or after a difficult event may be part of self-care. Another part of self-care may be choosing to do part of an event, but not all of it. So we did mention rescheduling the haircut, but let's take a different example. Let's say that someone very close to you in your immediate family is getting married, and you really want to attend the marriage ceremony and the reception, but you do know that this will be pretty overwhelming to your nervous system. So rather than thinking, should I or shouldn't I, think about what parts of that you might participate in 
what might it look like for you to participate in the wedding ceremony or the marriage? Um, For example, let's say your family member asks you to sing a song at the uh, ceremony and you love music, you have a beautiful voice, but you know that the intensity of the day is going to be so high that you, you just can't add to it. So you say, I would love to sing for you guys. Maybe I could do that in private. I just think that the day will be so much that I'm not sure I could get through the song. Perhaps you might also tell your family member that you're going to look for some places at the church and at the reception where you could go for a quiet break every half hour or as needed so that you're going to step out, you're going to regroup, maybe you bring some of your favorite things with you, and you're going to take care of your nervous system at intervals uh, during the ceremony and during the reception. Let's say this is a wedding that you have to travel to. Maybe you get there a day ahead of time and you take advantage of the pool and the jacuzzi, you listen to music, you watch one of your favorite funny movies, and you don't participate in the uh, rehearsal dinner just to let people know that the event is so important to you that you're really trying to gather this resilience to be fully present for the ceremony and the reception. So another part of this workaround, this recognition of a difficult event, may be to say, what would it look like for me to participate in this? Or what parts am I going to forgo? Uh, And how am I going to add resilient activities around that? These are some strategies for taking care of yourself and your nervous system to help you keep some momentum without bouncing back from acceleration to a standstill. We want your nervous system to be in a just right state most of the time. And these are some strategies that can help. Thanks for joining me. I already have ideas for next time and hope you'll join me. 